Welcome to the October edition of the Cinetopia radio show and podcast. I'm Amanda, founder of Cinetopia, and I'm back with my co-producer, Jim Ross. Jim, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. And I hear you're coming up to Edinburgh soon from Oxford, right? I am, yep. Hoping to be at the, the networking night, which is happening, so that'll be good. Be good to see you folks. Great. I'll be looking forward to seeing you and um, also getting the whole team back together as uh, Ben. Yeah. So we're also here with um, a new, uh, well, a new contributor to the Cinetopia podcast, but I've been working with her for over this past year on Cinescapes, Isabel Salomon. Isabel, how are you doing? I'm doing very, very well. Very happy to be here. <laughs> Great. So tell us a little bit about, um, well, what we can talk a little bit about Cinescapes and what we've been up to, but tell us a little bit about uh, what you do um, with your Edinburgh Cinema Club and um, your passion about film. So basically Edinburgh Cinema Club is a club that I started to connect people with different community businesses, each other, and then also the big screen. So the whole idea is I take a group of people to go and see a movie and then we chat about it over wine, small plates. They're usually themed in some way to do with the movie. So it's just a really nice way of getting people who don't have anyone to go to the movies with, who want to have sort of a more immersive experience and a more meaty discussion. Because basically I love film. Outside of film, I work in wine. So combining my two passions and yeah, that's pretty much it. Those are my two passions as well, although my wine knowledge is far worse, as I've learned, than, than, than most, um, but I enjoy it a lot and I enjoy film. Um, but yeah, so Isabel and I have been working together on this big project, which we've been talking about on the, on the um, program of Cinescapes, which is a touring festival. And we just finished the one in Oban, I think, last time when we, when we were chatting. Um, and Isabel, how, how have you enjoyed working on Cinescapes? Oh my God, loved it. But also Oban was absolutely amazing. If you get a chance to have a look at some of the images that we've got of it, they're pretty breathtaking. We had a drone sort of in McKeg's Tower looking down over everything, showing our lovely sold out event. So that was absolutely magical. Can't wait to get on board with the next one as well. Yeah, and the nice thing is, um, you know, as everyone who is regulars listening, they know that I have a curse with rain, but it only just spritzed. I like to say it's spritzed like a lovely uh, Italian cocktail, um, which only fit, like, fit for the whole ambience of Aquarella, which was isn't a fantastic film um, that you should check out. Um, it was, we were running it online, uh, but now it, I believe it's still on BBC. So we highly recommend you checking out that film no matter what. Yeah, um, I, I, I do feel like you pick you pick that film to guard against your your rain bad luck because then you can just say it's yeah. on theme. It's on theme. It's on theme. It was, it's, it's, it was it's, on it's, theme, you know. and it was yeah. It was a couple moments where it just it perfectly spritzed, like during a storm in the film, and it was like this is great. Um, so we yeah, but we also have really good news um, for Cinescapes and Cinetopia and our collaborators. We did a huge project in September called Redrawing Edinburgh. And it was, um, yeah, we showed a, a short film program that we put together uh, across Edinburgh on, in five different locations on walls with our lovely friends, Double Take Projections. 
and it's just been nominated for a Creative Edinburgh Award. Uh, we worked with the City Archives to do this, Edinburgh City Archives, and um, yeah, Isabel and I were there at every every event. Um, was really fantastic experience, but we're really thrilled to be honored um, and honored to be nominated, shortlisted for the award with EHFM, by the way. Who is um, so so? It's kind of uh, yeah, we're on EHFM talking about being nominated for Redrawing Edinburgh. It's very very. <laughs> meta or something like that it's very um uh but yeah so congratulations to ehfm as well um but yeah isabel um yeah how do you and did you enjoy that experience as well as much as i did oh my gosh so much it was um it was really cool because we projected in the five different areas and you can see the video online still actually via our cinescapes website but we projected in the five different areas and it was really cool to see how the different communities each responded to the film and then also, and especially when their names were shouted out. So there was like a thing on Crammond and all the people in Crammond just went a bit wild like when they heard Crammond and the same with Collington. So it was just, it was really nice to see how people were engaging with that and then finishing it up in Leith with a live set by um, Diwali was pretty spectacular and especially with this pink infusion light which was in the background so it was just a really lovely lovely experience and a really great team who all pitched in and a really great collaboration yeah absolutely and definitely yeah definitely check our website or check even on indie on demand to watch the film if you'd like it'll be there for quite some time um and hopefully we'll be able to do something like that again i mean cinescapes is really we're we're about to announce the final so keep check check online or on our socials we'll be, uh, we'll announce our final screening of cinescapes for 2021 um but we're really keen to do a lot more this is like it's like a little it's it's nuts absolutely nuts to do outdoor film screenings in um in in scotland but it's been fun right <laughs> Oh, it's been it's been so fun. I mean, despite the rain and the bit of drizzle here and there, um, it's been really, really cool. And we do have plans to do a few more things indoors as well moving forward. So watch this space because we're definitely going to be announcing some really other fun projects soon. So that's going to be pretty exciting. I know I'm excited. I'm sure you are too, Amanda. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully also by the time, yes, this um, airs or coming up before our next screening, we'll be talking about a Japanese um, documentary program that was curated by Ren Skateni, who is a longtime collaborator of Cinetopia. So that's very exciting for November as well, and some more exciting ones. So stay tuned for that. But let's get to the films that we saw in the cinema, or uh, we will see in the cinema, or you should see in the cinema. And that is um, the three films we're going to review today on our show. So that would be um, no Time to Die, uh, the next, the latest Bond film, which has been out for, a, you know, a week or so um, in the UK. And we all quite, yeah, we thought we had to talk about it. Um, it was a massive box office success. Um, and it's, it were, yeah, we will talk about that for sure. The next film we're going to um, is to review is The Beta Test, or otherwise known as The Beta Test, uh, directed by Jim Cummings. And it's already out. So it's out um, in UK cinemas right now. Um, I'm not sure about the US, but um, but it will be out. And that um, was, I think, premiered at Berlin Alley, or was at Berlin Alley for sure. Um, then the final film we're going to review is part of 
the London Film Festival, which uh, was Lutsu. It also was at Sundance earlier this year. And uh, Jim had sat down with the director, Alex Camillari, uh, previously um, on the show. But now we're, we've all seen the film as part of the London Film Festival. And we want to yeah, talk about it and review it as well. So that was it's been picked up by Picadillo Pictures and will be out in UK cinemas eventually. And we hope you will check it out. But we'll be talking a little bit about um, the London Film Festival. Uh, both Isabel and I saw quite a few films in uh, the lovely film house. And honestly, Bond was the first film I've seen in a year in the cinema. But that's mostly because I've been running outdoor film events. Um, and, uh, then I just, just cracked on and saw like five more this week. So, uh, yeah, just when I want to, when I do something, I do it full on, I guess. Um, so I've seen like six films in, in the cinema so far and mostly at film house, but the London film festival coming to Edinburgh was very exciting. So that's our show. Um, so look, look we, yeah, let's stay tuned. We all have our secrets. We just didn't get to yours yet. The world is arming faster than we can respond. Where's 007? I need a favor, brother. You're the only one I trust for this. The world's moved on, Commander Bond. You were double O. Two years. So stay in your lane. You get in my way. I will put a bullet in your knee. The one that works. So the first film that we're going to review is No Time to Die, the latest Bond film. And Jim, why don't you give us a little bit of an overview of why we're talking about it? I mean, a few reasons. First of all, it's a it's a massive film, right? I think this is this is definitely the biggest film that's come out in the UK since the pandemic hit. Um, you know, to give you an idea of the scale of the Bond films at the British box office, I was kind of astounded to learn that the third highest grossing film at the UK box office of all time is Spectre, the last Bond film. Which, spoiler alert, because we'll get into what we think about uh, Daniel Craig's run of films. I didn't like Spectre. I don't think it was that good, um, but it is the third highest grossing film there. The second is Skyfall. The only thing that's ahead of it is the um, the new, the first of the new run of Star Wars films, right? So it's ahead of all the Avengers things and things like that. It's, it's a very big deal. So what this film is setting up is this, we already know this to be Daniel Craig's last outing as James Bond, and it's basically picking up the story from his previous four films. So as the film opens, and I'm not going to go into huge details about the plot because there's a limited amount. I think you can probably get out of the the plot for 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 Bond films, right? They you know they have they have something they want to do and they usually execute them pretty well. But basically, as we open, we are introduced in flashback to Lucifer Safin, which is the main villain of this film, played by uh, Rami Malek. And basically, he is terrorizing the family of a very young Madeline Swan, played as an adult by Leah Seydoux, who's reprising her role from Spectre, who, of course, you know, 
Bond drove off with her at the finale of the last film. So as it opens, those two are together and events are set in motion, right? There's a new villain, there's some new overarching, you know, grand um, world domination type thing he wants to achieve. And it's up to Bond and his various kind of supporting characters to 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 stop this in different ways. Um, as I say, there's not really... I, I, I think there's a limited amount of going into the plot in detail after that, because this is a lot more about what, for me anyway, what the film then tries to do with these characters and what it says about um, this run of Bond films as a whole. So I, I won't lie, I have many thoughts. I have many thoughts. Um, but before I start, you know, flapping my trap too much, I think I'll open up to you two and just see, how did, how did you find it? Did you get everything you wanted out of this? I'll, um, I'll start. Um, I I love Bond. I love the Bond franchise. Don't love Daniel Craig as Bond. So just going to put that out there now. He's maybe one of my least favourite Bonds. Um, it was long. I enjoyed it. I felt like I got a good resolution with him. I'm very ready for a new Bond, but it was long and I felt those two hours and 43 minutes. <laughs> Not that you're counting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i i have a i like i said this was literally the first time i had been in a cinema in a year and the last time i had been in a cinema which was the first time in another year or almost a year was the sofia coppola on the rocks which we don't need to go into how much i didn't like that film but <laughs> i so i found the biggest screen to see this film that was 20 well I say biggest screen I think I could have seen it in the IMAX if I had wanted to go to Cineworld which I did not um but I it, 20 minutes away from me so I was ready for the Bond experience the multiplex ex experience and I got what I wanted out of that for sure so like I think it's just saving myself for a very big Hollywood film you know as the first time I come back I think I think it was fine and I think I also really really love I mean it was gorgeous the you know the people I really like Rami Malek I thought that was a fun you know he was a he played a fun villain and that and I also yeah I think um you know the 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 scenery and the lighting and the funness that is Bond is worked fine for me um you know I I also had my large Diet Coke, which I always do. So yeah, maybe a couple too many bathroom breaks or whatever because it was so long, you know. But um, other than that, it was a, it was yeah, it was a Bond film for me, and it wasn't it wasn't um, it wasn't the best one I've ever seen. Like I definitely enjoyed Skyfall more, um, but I think it was it was fun. It's interesting. It's interesting. Both of you mentioned the length, right? Because I. So I have some issues with it. So overall, I liked it, right? I, 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 had, I had a good time with this. I got I got out of it what I think you, you would expect to get from, you know, the new shiniest Bond film. It's interesting that you both mentioned the length, though, because the length is actually something that I didn't really feel. Um, like, I, I felt I kind of, like, clipped along pretty well. I think it's paced quite well. I think the, the set pieces and like the action scenes i think are really pretty good and i think like in particular like the look of these films like ever since roger deakins did the cinematography on skyfall and then you had hoyt van hoytema and the last one specter um 
like the the look of these films has really gone up a notch. Um, and I rewatched recently, actually, before I saw it, I rewatched Casino Royale. And don't get me wrong, like Casino Royale is a, is a you know perfectly good, it's a good looking film, but there's something about these that have really taken on like an extra sheen that I think has added something to them that I don't really remember from Bond films growing up myself, right? You know, I never remember thinking this about even the good Brosnan ones, like say, you know, Goldeneye or, you know, anything like that. I think that's something that's been added to it. Um, I, one thing I do want to say in terms of like getting the blockbuster experience out of it is I really, really like the Hans Zimmer score to this. And I know, I know he's not always for everyone because I think a lot of people can get a little, um, a little fed up. Like Hans Zimmer basically just seems to score every massive film at the moment, right? It always seems to come out as a Hans Zimmer score. I think this is one of his better ones. Um, and I, when I wrote about the film, I likened it to. He, he's done things for like iconic characters before. Like he did the score for Man of Steel, like the Superman film that came out, which I didn't think was a great film, but I liked his score. Um, the Lone Ranger, you know, like you know, the, like the discussion on that films are another for another time. But again, iconic music that he blended with his own, and you know, um, things like that. It's almost like having some sort of expectation around what the music should roughly sound like. Kind of hems him in just enough. Um, and the track that's really stuck in my head is kind of, it's in the opening segment of the film where there's an escape in the Aston Martin from a, a piazza in Italy. And the music for that, I just thought it was absolutely superb. It's like, you know, this is, that's, I think that's when I felt like really I am back at the cinema when I was sitting watching that. Um, so in that respect, I, I got a lot out of it. Um, and I think before I get, before I, or we maybe get into the things that I was less taken with in the film, because they're probably slightly more, um, you know, esoteric concerns. As much as anything else, I didn't go to a particularly busy screen. It was just really good to be back in a cinema watching a film of this scale. You know, I mean, I have I have my issues with the film, right? It's not a perfect film, but there's something about kind of the the music and the look of it and the scale of it and just kind of like the just the you know how massive this is. Um, it felt really good to be back in a cinema watching this, and I think it's you know in that respect, I think it's a very good. A very good experience at the cinema. I think it's the ideal thing to try and go back to. It reminds you why you would want to go to these things, really. Talking about the aesthetic, like it was everything about it was exactly perfect for Bond in that I loved the cars, I loved the weapons. And I know that was one of the things that they were trying to push to make things a little bit more realistic. They were like, we don't care if they're fanciful, but we want them to be in a realistic way. Mm -hmm. And that on the big screen was just absolutely breathtaking. But um, and it's a really good way, I think, for introing into more films that are being released, like the Venoms that are then coming out. So now, you know, we've had Bond and now it's like, well, now we can transition a little bit into more blockbuster films and people are more ready for that. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, I agree, like it's a perfect film to see in the cinema. Uh, we always talk about all these films that we saw during lockdown that should have been seen in the cinema anyway but it was an emotional ride. And I'm one of those people who gets quite emotional in cinema in general, especially like on airplanes. But for some, I def definitely felt myself getting emotional and over Bond. And I'm at the same time laughing at the silly Bond lines as well. Um, I think and what, you know, I also remember getting Nintendo 64 for that 007 GoldenEye, um, you know, game. And there were parts of it where I felt like I was in a game or I was almost in an amusement ride. And I mean, this is something obvious, like we all know about cinema, but when you're out of it for so long, you realize what 
and how thing how things are now made and what the technology or the way that like you you mix like you said cinematography and and lighting and scenery and whatnot but this is there you know there's so much of this almost felt like you were part of like a Disney ride or something. And in a, in a very great way, I really loved the scenes in Cuba and particularly, and um, yeah, just the lighting in those pieces too. They almost felt like sets, you know, I don't know, you know, what they were, what they, but they just, it, it was a really, really fun, fun experience. So yes, it was long, but I, I was enjoying every, I was enjoying it in that capacity, you know, like, is it my, is this the film I always go to see and I pick as my top one? No, but I, but I had a great time. Having said all this, <laughs> of right, course. here it, you know, here, here it comes, right? So I am, the, I, I am the sort of, generally speaking, I've liked Daniel Craig's Bond films, right? Um, I think, I think he's up there for me as one of the best Bond. Like, unlike Isabel, I think I'd probably put him, I'd probably put him up there, I think. I mean, I think... I've probably got a bit of national bias towards Sean Connery still, you know, but overall, like this run of films I've liked, right? Casino Royale is an excellent film. I rewatched that recently, longer than I remember, actually, as well over two hours, which I was kind of surprised by, but, and it's an excellent film. Quantum of Solace, I think, gets a bit of a kicking it doesn't deserve. It's not the best, but it was also made in very difficult circumstances. I'm surprised it came, you know, with the writer's strike and everything, I'm surprised it came out as well as it did, to be perfectly honest. Um, Skyfall is one of these films where I really liked watching it at the time and I have since written uh, about my very sort of wankery concerns that people don't like to to <laughs> listen to about what it represented for that franchise though Spectre, you know, I wasn't particularly taken with Spectre but I like this one, it did do a lot of the kind of like the blockbuster stuff really well um, There are two major issues I have with No Time to Die. The first one is, unlike you, Amanda, I did not dig Rami Malek as the villain. I th- I thought he was just like an absolute identical Bond villain. He could have wandered in off. And the thing is, right, and I have a larger concern this leads into that I think this his his casting and his role was representative of. I honestly think he could have wandered off the set of Noss and Power set and it would have been you know, it would like basically there would have been very little difference, and that's before we get into the whole thing about you know like facial scarring signifying villainy and all that. Like you know, people have written people have written on that far more eloquently than I could ever say here. It's unfortunate it's there for me, but anyway. But the bigger issue is I, and this is a very hard thing to deal with without getting into spoilers. I find this to be in terms of the script and themes and what it's wanting to say about the character and you know the relationships it's set up over these films. I, I think it's a bit of a confused film, to be honest. I don't really, I don't really understand the choice of villain here. I, I don't get it and in terms of like what they want to cover in this. Like it, it's Daniel Craig's last Bond film, right? So there's stuff around um, legacy, lasting impact, the choices we make in like you know this is all there. And I'm not you know I'm not expecting a Bond film to deliver like you know a deep you know psychological text or something, but. I do expect its choices within its script and within its world to be consistent with what it's trying to do, right? I don't necessarily expect you to into depth from it, but I expect some consistency. To me, it doesn't really have it. It gets away with it. I don't think you're particularly bothered about it in the moment, but I think when you've got this film, which is trying to cap off 
for the first time in the Bond films, I think, really, a multi-arc story, right? It's done this sort of thing before with, um, like, the end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service and things like that. Like, the idea of kind of, like, can- things canning across films in terms of emotional parts of the story has happened before. But this is, the, I think, this is the first set of films I can think of where it's actually really unequivocally done that. I think it's made some choices that dilute that impact. And I think the impact is going for with this final entry suffers for it. And I think they did without getting in without getting into spoilers around who is utilized and who is not utilized. The fact that Rami Malik is a fairly ineffectual villain here is probably the biggest symptom of what I'm talking about. It's probably to me it's the biggest symptom I can talk about without giving away aspects of the film. Um is that he he poses no he poses no threat to the Bond character that isn't just logistical. He's another maniac with a plan, right? There's no, there's no, to me, deeper resonance in his villainy. And I think there, you know, for all the problems that Spectre had, they tried to do something with Christoph Waltz's character there. I don't think it really worked, but they were trying to do something. They've set that up and has been abandoned. In Skyfall, they were trying something with this personal vendetta angle and it's been abandoned and it was retconned inspector. And then it's just, there's a lot of these decisions that have been made where I think if they'd had a little bit more courage in its convictions and the way it was scripted, it would have actually ended up like really pretty excellent and consistent. I, to me, that just, it, it didn't work, but as I say, Rami Malik is the biggest symptom of that to me, I think that, you, that I can talk about without giving, <laughs> giving the game away completely, basically. Well, I think that um, I too did not enjoy Rami Malek's performance, so I'm just putting that out there now. I um, I didn't even think he made sense as the villain. That was my biggest issue. His whole ageing, his whole structure of his body, it just did not mm. seem to align with the original sort of villain at the start of the movie. It just it made no sense, the age timeline for Rami Malek there. I disagree with you on the like structure of him as a villain. I actually thought he was quite typical of what the Bond villains are always like. I think it's always a logistical hurdle for Bond. Like, so I'm not really getting the other sort of aspect that you're bringing in with the Christoph Waltz. I don't really see how that wasn't just logistical as well. It always seems to be they're setting it up so it's just Bond can win. He has to be able to triumph somehow. There has to be some sort of hidden weakness. I, I see you saying, like, in terms of it's usually logistic. Yes, absolutely. I think what I'm with the there's a few common threads across the films in the sense that, like, so you've got Eva Green's character from Casino Royale, right? Now, this part I will give away because it's basically the opening of the film, right? Where as the film opens, essentially, he, he is still four films later mourning that character, and her presence plays a role at the start of the film here. So you've got that there. There is well, spoil Spectre, it's a six-year-old film at this point, right? Um, so Christoph Waltz, right, who in the lead-up to that film was told that it said to be playing Franz Oberhauser. Of course, he wasn't. He was playing a, a new version of Blofeld. Now, I have a lot of problems with how that was handled in that film, right? But it's set up as he's kind of the, the adoptive brother of Bond, right? And again, we'll put to one side the fact that that's the plot of Austin Powers 3, and we'll gloss over that. That's now made its way back into a Bond film. Don't look at me like that, Amanda. It's true. It's true. That is the plot of Austin Powers 3. But once they have set this up, this angle of that personal element that is there with 
Bond's adoptive brother. And then they wouldn't have previously have it with, um, you know, Raul Silva having that vendetta angle against Judy Dench's aim in Skyfall. It's more a case of, yes, that has historically what Bond villains have been. They've been a logistical challenge for them to overcome and win. But they've not been doing that in recent films. They've been trying to introduce this angle. And in particular, what I would say is in the previous films, what's weird about it is they've introduced this angle, but they've not fit the plot around that. The plot makes no sense around those personal angles. Here, there's almost like they've gone the other way. They've got all the they've got a lot of elements of the plot and kind of things that happen or people that show up or characters that are introduced where there is that personal angle and they are trying to build it around that, but then the entire thing that, that, is, driv- that is driving the film in the form of Rami Malek's Lucifer, Lucifer Safin, another one of these ridiculous names, I can't really say it properly, um, doesn't doesn't tally with that at all. It's almost like they've, they've it's like they keep like pushing one, it's like they're playing whack-a-mole to me. They, they can get the themes right, but then the characters don't back up, or they can get the characters right, but the themes don't back it up. And, it to me, it just it kind of dilutes a little bit the emotional impact that they are clearly going for with, particularly with this this last film. And I think, as I say, it gets away with it for me. But it's just it's hard to think with like with a slight tweet and just like just stick with it a little bit, and you could have actually stuck the landing here. And I think to me, it's unfortunate, but that's you know I I'm fully aware of that it's not gonna it's not gonna bother everybody to the same extent. I don't think, but. I thought I thought it was just deferring more to like it was seemed to me like it was paying an homage to sort of older style bonds and more of the traditional narratives of them where they are just these villains who just pop up out of nothing and don't need to have that personal attachment to Bond. And I thought it, it reminded me more of like the old school like Roger Moore sort of style ones. But I see what you're saying. And because they'd set up this big build up for Daniel Craig to be going like this, why wouldn't you follow through with the grand finale having this huge yeah. impact with the villain? So I do get that. I, I guess I wasn't I wasn't overanalyzing Rami Malek's performance as much in, in that case. I you know, I, I and I was thinking of as a typical Bond villain and just, you know, but I I mean these are good points that I'm now taking in and will, you know, relook. I, I think I need to do a whole, you know, Bond marathon and you know then I can analyze it a bit more I'm just very excited to see one again oh I was just going to say can we jump to my biggest issue with the film which was the lack of chemistry between Bond and um what was her name uh Leah Leah Sado um I just thought they had absolutely no chemistry it just it was so strange to me that this was meant to be the big love story I don't understand it I, I'm open to other opinions. I, I, I can see it. I, I I've seen people make it this way. I don't I, I don't think I find it quite as inert as like a lot of people do, but it's not there's something that's not quite there. And I think the the thing is you've got a very easy comparison in through the same set of films, right? If you look back to Casino Royale and the chemistry that like Daniel Craig and his cat had with um Ava Green's Vesper Lind, like it's a very it's a, like if you put the like if you if as I did, you rewatch Casino Royale, and then you look at the last couple that I've had Leo say do it. It, it. Like you do notice it. I don't think it's quite as 
I don't think it's completely inert, but it, like there is a pretty stark difference. And like, we're not going to talk about this film on the show because unfortunately we haven't been able to do it, but the French Dispatch, right? So there's a segment with Benicio Del Toro and Leo Cedu in that film. The two of them have more chemistry on screen in about 10 or 15 minutes. And I think that you, that she managed Daniel Craig across, you know, two films or something. So I don't think it bothers me to the same extent, but I, I think you're on point with that observation. It is something that you you, you especially notice if you're comparing it with the other, the, other, uh, the first Craig film in Casino Royale, at least. Well, well, comparing it with the first, yeah, definitely, like with Ava Green, obviously a huge amount of chemistry there, but also even in this film itself, when he's then with Anna de, um, de Amaris, um, mm. they have so much chemistry. Yeah. I know it's not in that sort of sexual nature, but it's just like there is so much on-screen chemistry there, and then we jump back to this other one, and you're like, oh, okay, where are we? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I, um, the Francophile in me enjoyed it. And so I, I didn't, it didn't bother me too much. Um, but I also really like Leah Sido. So I'm excited about the chemistry in the French Dispatch that you've spoiled for me, but in a good way. So, it's all right. It's the first um, segment. It gets it pretty quickly. You're, 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 you're going to enjoy that film. Bad oh, know, I think Frank, so. Francophile, <laughs> like Wes Anderson, huge Francophile. You're a huge Francophile. Like you're, yeah. I, I find it hard to believe you're not going to cover that film. Enjoy. <laughs> I think there I might I might buy it yeah buy it going a couple times um for sure uh yeah I've been looking for it for years uh so yes uh so Bond No Time to Die uh it's out now if you don't know about that already and um yes it's it's uh well it's a it, it's a wild ride and maybe it has a few you know bits in there that we don't all agree on but I think it's worth checking out What are we doing here? A couple of weeks ago, I got a letter in the mail inviting me to a no-strings-attached sexual encounter in a hotel room. It's pretty card, looked official. I don't know. I was stupid. I went. What? Dude, this is nuts. I had to wear a blindfold. But the woman... <laughs> I can't even tell you. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. what's going on here? Hold on. Wait, this is really happening? You really did this? In this climate? Honey, is anything going on? We're getting married in like six weeks. If anything was going on, I'd let you know. Now I'm suspicious of everyone. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's my wife. People are so terrified of stepping out of line. <laughs> Consequences won't go away anymore. So the next film we're going to review is The Beta Test and uh, directed by Jim Cummings, already out in the cinema. And Isabel, tell us about this film. So The Beta Test is written and directed by Jim Cummings, who everyone might know from Thunder Road that he did, I think it was last year or maybe two years ago, which was a bit of a big hit. And basically what this film is all about is it's a wild ride through this old married Hollywood agent who receives this mysterious letter and then he becomes ensnared in this weird sort of psychological turmoil. So it's a bit of a head spin. So, yeah, maybe we'll all just have a chat about that now. Yeah, I wouldn't have necessarily said old, but, yeah. I didn't I mean, mean old. 
<laughs> well, he's not he's not old in terms of age, but I think there's a bit of an archetype going on there. Is maybe like you know, if we're gonna if you want if you want to retrofit a word to it, like there's there's plenty of that going on. I think. Yeah, Jim, what did you think about it? Because I've not seen Thunder Road, so I had no sort of thing to kind of you know put it put it against. Other I, than- well, I'm actually in the same boat in that respect. Like, I intended to watch Thunder Road before I saw this, um, and I think I think his previous one, The Wolf of Snow Hall, I think that's maybe a little bit harder to get your hands on. Um, but it, so it's actually my, my my first experience of um, Jim Cummings filmmaking. Um, I I enjoyed this a lot. It reminded me. It reminded me of, and this is this is going to sound like I'm damning with faint praise, but I, I'm not. It reminded me of certain other films I've watched in recent years, which are a lot worse. Um, but this one actually basically has done um, some of those elements a lot better. I'll maybe talk about some of those films in a sec. But I think the sort of ridiculous manic energy that Jim Cummings brings to his role um, in the middle of this, kind of as this um, agent who receives the, basically receives this letter as a sort of, a, you know, an, an invite to an anonymous sexual encounter, basically. And as, as the film opens, you actually see the aftermath of somebody else getting one of these invites. And it's set in this kind of like very Hollywoody world of agents and kind of deal making and, you know, trying to get people to sign deals and being sort of very accommodating whilst also being ruthless at the same time. It's this very sort of like weird, weird world. And I think he captures that both with, um, you know, the, the the script and the way that the film progresses and how he shows that, but also in his, his performance as well. I had a lot of time for that central performance. It's, it's very darkly funny. And I think that's the sort of thing that I click with, um, pretty well in film um so i got i got like this i enjoyed this a lot actually um but you know it's um whether it maybe coalesces to like a, a nice point i don't know but i i quite liked a lot of the stuff it dealt with and how it presented it i um i quite enjoyed it so um there were parts of it I didn't love. And unlike both of yourselves, I have seen Thunder Road. So I had um, an actual predisposition to Jim Cummings. And I loved Thunder Road because it's a very heartwarming film. So it's also got his weird, like, neurotic energy. But it's in this really lovely way and exploring his sort of personal growth. And so this is, like, sort of exploring the demise of personal growth, mm. so to speak. So it was interesting to see him playing a much darker role. I thought he did it very, very well. And my only major issue with it, I thought parts were very confusing, which I think were deliberate, but I found myself just pausing and being like, what am I watching? Like, where am I? Like, what is going on in this film? Yeah. I mean, I didn't love it as much as you both did. Um, I think I'm, I can get around a, an idea about, you know, obsession and, you know, sort of th- this, you know, having this altered ter- world and, and, you know, like a dark comedy in, in a lot of ways. But I, I, I guess I just didn't find and I understand it was supposed to be a satire on, you know, what what was it like Hollywood and how people are so you know, are so vile in, in that. And I was just thinking, cause la- last week was the 20th anniversary of Mulholland drive. And, you know, there's, there's so much in that film about the vileness of people and that industry and whatnot and how it's handled. And I just felt this was a bit over the top. And I also perhaps didn't really like 
the character like I didn't get behind the character yelling at his assistant and um I just did it just made me like it, and he did I, I don't know I just don't feel like he was even punished enough for like his poor behavior and his like you know his kind of sociopathic kind of thing but I mean I know that I like it wasn't there wasn't enough there for me to really you know, think it was that funny. And I guess maybe, maybe that's why comedy does sometimes translates and sometimes doesn't for people. I love sarcastic comedy and this was a little bit less sarcastic and more just over the top, you know. Well, I didn't think it was really funny at all. So, I mean, I know it was meant to be quite funny, but no, I, I didn't find much humor injected in sort of the whole narrative. Um, what I really liked about it was, like Jim's performance. I loved how he moved his body as he was transitioning through different emotions. Like all of a sudden you'd see his posture changing, his jaw was changing. And I really liked how they were sort of juxtaposition between that physical change with his personal change. So I found that quite endearing. Didn't love the ending, which obviously I won't spoil, but for him, I thought he did a brilliant job and it had, it reminded me of both Jim Carrey, his performance reminded me of Jim Carrey and sort of the Truman Show. And he also really reminded me of uh, American Psycho, Christian Bale. So I thought it was like a combination of those two performances. I, I got, so I, I totally can see that. And that's probably why I didn't like it as much, but I, I actually like American Psycho, but that's not a comedy obviously. And so I gather, I really felt this was a take on American Psycho in a lot of ways. And the Jim Carrey that I didn't like, you know, back, back in the day, um, very much so, but the character was the American psycho character. And I was like, get over it guy. You know, we're all going through these kinds of, you know, internal like obsession sort of secret things or whatever. And you're, you know, you're tormenting everybody. I do see like the physicality of this was interesting. A part of me not liking the character whatsoever. Um, but yeah, we were talking about physicality last last month with um, Annette and also the other day, you know, in terms of I've, I've seen better performances in that way. And I do think this was supposed to be a comedy. That would be my understanding of it. So again, maybe it's just I'm not the Jim Carrey comedy kind of physical comedy kind of person. I'm more the, you know, SNL kind of girl. You see, too, I, yeah, I, I mean, I... I did find that, I mean, I mean, don't be wrong, it's not, you know, it's not funny throughout. Like, it's not particularly funny when, you know, and this happens in the open two minutes of the film, so I'll, I'll spoil it without, like, spoiling the rest of the film. You know, when somebody gets stabbed in the neck, it's not particularly funny, right? You know, so it's not, it, it's not funny in that, that in, we're making the Jim Carrey comparison, which is a completely on-point comparison in terms of that, as I say, that, what you've said, that physicality that Jim Cummings has. Um, you know, we're not talking like you know the mask or something here, right? It's it's more kind of that sort of like dark comedy that generates a bit of like pathos or something. But there are definitely points where I think that plays into the humor of it. And I've got one particular point in mind where he approaches a hotel desk to ask for information. He has no authority to ask for this information. He has no standing. He has no leverage. Nothing, and he really goes through so many different personas and turns on to, and it just shows it just shows this um his character jordan up for essentially the the book artist that he is um you know because when he needs to turn on a dime like that it just becomes completely transparent there's nothing left to hide between behind 
And one film that it reminded me a lot of, which I think was going for a similar sort of tone in the sense that it's it's dark and it's uncomfortable, but it's going for, um, you know, it's trying to find the humour at the edge of it, is um, Under the Silver Lake, which came out about three years ago now, um, screened at the Glasgow Film Festival. And it, got, it didn't really get a particularly huge release in the end, but, it, it you know, and it had a bit of that kind of like... Um, Southland Tales thing going on. It was like this, consi- you know, the conspiracy, and you go down the rabbit hole and all the rest of it. And I think the thing that I liked about the film, just talking about in terms of like, you know, him not being punished for his behavior, is this is a character who, in this Hollywood world and this, um, you know, very fake world where everything is a game, it's a game to be won, right? You can figure out a way around the rules, or you can find a loophole, or you can charm somebody and you you can win and i think what i appreciate is the film got went on it kind of presented this well no you can't you can and i'll bleep this out but basically it was basically turning around to that card and saying you're pal like you've had it like you know um so in in that respect I, i i kind of enjoyed it and i think it did that a lot better than say under the silver lake which was a film that annoyed me because it kind of wanted to have its cake and eat it i felt like it was kind of leading into into both whilst it did some things quite well so to me this felt like kind of taking those elements along with kind of the comparisons that the the two of you have made about um kind of um you know the character in american psycho and you know the physicality of kind of a jim carrey type approach and it brings it together into something that really works pretty well for me i think it could have maybe had more of a a punch in that respect i think and a little bit like isabel i'm not I'm not 100% sold on the ending. Um, you know, I feel like it probably could have. I, I feel like it could have tied those ideas that I've spoken about together a little bit, a little bit better. Um, but for me, it worked. For me, it worked really, really, really pretty well. But I think I, the, the strongest point is Jim Cummings' performance. I think without that central performance, it could feel a little flat. It could feel a little empty. I think it needs that to to pull it together, and it doesn't quite do it 100% but it does it enough to make it for me a a pretty enjoyable effective watch I think I think there's also questions I had as well in terms of like I I don't know like the villain character of sorts you know who who was he and 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 it was just kind of thrown in there a bit as well and I I don't know I I think it's his yeah I you just cut me out there just cut that whole bit out I don't even know what I'm gonna say well that's that's what I meant by it was so confusing in parts like you were just like I'm a bit confused as to where we're going with this but like yourself Jim like I mean Jim Cummings was so good and that's exactly where he shone in Thunder Road as well that was the whole like without him there was no film there and I quite like how he just lands in a setting and a film builds around him but my sort of final words on this film would be the teeth I just thought the teeth were so good and I couldn't stop looking at his teeth all the time. I thought they used their mouth and like the zooming in and the close-ups and the panning out. I just thought that was fascinating and I liked that. Yeah, that's very good. It's also, it's a, go, go watch the film, folks, because you'll understand that a lot more once you watch the film. But that's absolutely on point, yeah. <laughs> well, it looks like I need to watch Thunder Road um, so I can see, yeah, the, uh, Jim Cummings um, in a different in a different light. But I think uh, mostly a positive review here of the beta test, which is out in cinemas and the UK right now. So check it out.
so the final film we're going to review today is Lutsu, which was part of the London Film Festival that just happened um, in London and across the UK um, this uh, couple week, well, last week. And so uh, let's um, let's talk a little bit about it. Uh, it's Alex Camilleri is the director who Jim talked to la- earlier this year, right, Jim? Yeah. So the the film debuted at. Sundance, uh, and, and so I saw it there. I, um, you know, not to not to not to spoil the review that's come. I like this film a, a, an enormous amount. I think it was probably one of my favourite ones that screened at Sundance. Um, and I, I I spoke to him um, for the show and take one after that screening. Um, it's gone to a few festivals since then. It was playing at Berlin Nally, and it's just recently been at London Film Festival. So it, it's probably going to pop up in other places on the festival circuit. Um, in the coming months, uh, but it has got a deal for UK distribution, so hopefully it will come out. I think it's probably going to come out maybe either very late this year or early next year. Um, but basically, it's set in Malta, um, and it follows a fisherman, Jez Mark, who's played by Jez Mark Cycluna, who's not a professional actor. This is his first acting acting job was this film. Um, and he fishes using a, a traditional a traditional boat, uh, a Lutsu, hence the title. Um, and he's had this boat for generations. It's been this family. It's got a footprint painted on it from when he was a baby. Um, but it develops a leak early on in the film, right? And basically it then puts him under pressure to provide um, for his newborn son that he has with uh, his wife, Denise, um, and he basically needs to find another way to find income. And it basically then, it, basically the way the film then plays out is this kind of push and pull between um, Jesmark wanting to maintain that kind of traditional way of life and something that's been his family for generations. And he actually seems to get like real joy from doing, you know, there's a, it, it's really a part of him. But then that kind of like the, the opportunities that are actually presented to him uh, maybe more modern, but they're a bit more sterile, cold. Um, they kind of lack romanticism, but also they kind of lack actual genuine opportunities for them as well. It's also easy to be exploited and um, not really get what you you signed up for, and maybe even need to dip into kind of illegal or corrupt um, circles to actually get anywhere. So um, that's that's the basic kind of thrust of the story. Um, it's. Pretty, it's largely non-professional actors. Um, so in that respect, it has some overlap with some other filmmakers that we'll talk about in terms of approach. Um, I, I'm curious what you two thought of it, though. I mean, I've put my cards on the table. This is this is that, that it was probably my favorite film I saw at Sundance. I think in terms of suffering at London, had I seen it at London, I think it would still be up there. As maybe one film that I think is up there with me. But I was really impressed with this film. So I'm kind of curious what what others think of it. Yeah, I'll just go in and talk about kind of the filming style as mo- mostly. I was really, really impressed by this film. I thought it was gorgeous. Uh, I think off off record, you were mentioning lists of films that fit certain themes. And this goes on the list of films that inspires me to go to the location. So I'm very much keen to go to Malta. I have a list of, of, of those kinds of those, uh, those films that I have to go to because a film has really inspired me to. I really love the way that it it really mixes i mean we've talked about you know certain films that are kind of these hybrids of documentary and narrative style and this is very much a narrative narrative film that has this kind of documentary flair and i think i really liked 
how it captured the fisherman's life. I'm very, very into fisherman films, films about, you know, um, I made a documentary about one and in, in some in Maine. And I think we, we talked about Urim at one point as well. And so I think just being able to capture kind of the conversations that are happening with the various fishermen and, and life in Malta and, and whatnot, it was, it was incredible. And um, so, so starting there, I, I think that that's great. And also just, it was a very emotional film. You know, I really felt, and I thought the performances were really great as well. So I really was intrigued intrigued by the whole the whole piece well i guess i am <laughs> the one on the outer for this one <laughs> i was not impressed with this film i thought it was so from the outset it was a beautiful film it was quite engaging the um how it was shot it was very lovely it does make you want to go obviously to malta that's not hard i don't think because it's a beautiful setting um i didn't love the story i thought it was not telling me anything new. I thought this is a story that we've seen time and time again. I was just like, why are we seeing this again? Like where's something new that you're bringing to the table? I didn't like him as a character. So I think that may be where I couldn't buy in wholly because I found him really irritating. And he sort of has my main issue with sort of men of that sort of age bracket where I'm just like, just grow up. <laughs> time for you to step up and sort of, take care of your family in other ways but um good parts were filming everything about it I didn't like the story so that's my main issue with it but I loved Denise I thought her performance was really really good and I did think he did a good job um I did um I did really like the whole dissolution into when will somebody go against their moral compass and how soon that will be. I didn't think it was as believable in this role. I didn't think they set the character up well enough for the actions that then were taken. Let me just put it like that. Yeah, I mean, I think I go back to this thing about the way it was filmed. I mean, I, I, again, I, I don't know what it is about, you know, people sitting on a corner stop, like I'm thinking of even say anything, you know, and just men talking, you know, like, and and the, this kind of capture of this moment of, of time spent. And I, th I think if you, if it's a story that's been told a lot about, you know, a certain type of work and an, you know, in, in an area, like a, like a, you know, an Island like this, it's, it's being told in a new, in a way that's very beautiful and different. And I've not seen a film like this about Malta. And I don't know about this, you know, this particular fishing, fishing culture, and again, I've seen a lot of films about fishermen or when I'm thinking of like the documentary Fire at Sea, which we've talked about, which is mostly about the migrant crisis, but also about a fishing village in Lampedusa. I think this one does an effective way of capturing in a documentary sense, you know, life um, that's now being lost. And I, you know, and, and it's something I'm always consistently um interested in seeing you know a, a, a capture of, of of a of a lifestyle that we're we're losing because of whatever reason in this case it you know it's it may be industry but also the climate crisis and stuff like that so it's it's bringing in these like very serious um you know issues right now in a very subtle but important way i think um the the, the, the i think the way i'd respond to some of what Isabel said is, I think that the idea that it's not a, a new type of story, I think it's a fair criticism, right? I, I think that this, sort of, this type of story has existed before. I think where it 
where it separated itself from me, I think, is a little bit in trying to get across some of, or at least it did to it did to me anyway, a little bit of the kind of romanticism or um, the way it connects to kind of a sense of being the way that that um, the fishing vacation links into it. Because one of the films that I can that, that really came up pretty strongly for me when I was watching it, and judging by the conversation afterwards, it seems like. It was at the forefront of Alex Camilleri's mind as well, and also it shared, interestingly, it shares a cinematographer, is Ken Loach's work, right? Especially when you start talking about, like, the non-professional actors and things like that. For my money, and, like, the, you know, I don't know, maybe I'll be drummed out of the magic circle for saying this. This is a better, for me, this is a better film than, than some of um, Loach's work in recent years. And, you know, I think maybe I, Daniel Blake, would be the exception to that, but... What I found really interesting about it, and I think where it separates itself from some of its peers in recent years is it manages to make this point without coming across like a political polemic. It's kind of, it's very light on making points, political points through the the dialogue. And don't be wrong, I mean, in terms of like any political points it would make, I mean, I think like from a, from a, you know, ideological standpoint, I'd probably lap it up, right? I mean, like, you know, in terms of Loach's filmography, he's kind of preaching to the choir with me, but that's but that's kind of the point, right? And I think what's interesting about it is it gets a lot of this across without making grandstanding points, without relying upon or kind of like being a so like so sorry so Loach's last film, Sorry We Missed You, right? Film I have a lot of time for. I thought it was an excellent film, but it still relies on this kind of like almost caricaturely kind of bad guy who runs the delivery office that film takes when you don't really have that here there are people who maybe take advantage of jay's mark they take advantage of his um needs to provide they take advantage you know or they kind of like steer him in directions that are you know not 100 percent legal like it's not that there aren't kind of you know um antagonist um figures in the film or at least people would face that way but they're not that caricature, and there's not this kind of, there's not an easy answer in this film. Like it's not. I don't think it really makes the point that you know he should be allowed to continue fishing in his lutsu, and like he should be able to just provide for his family indefinitely. It does, but it does present that conflict, and I think it does it in a way that it doesn't. It kind of shows you why it ends up going the way it does, but it does lament the loss of something that can't be replaced. And I think that's an interesting way to go. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it excuses him, but I think it gets across what it is he feels he's losing quite well, or it did to me at least. And I think that's the only thing that, that to me, I think is maybe the thing that's, not, not even SI new. I mean, there'll be other films that have done this, but the thing that maybe separates it from some of the slightly less, subtle um of its brethren in recent years i think maybe it's funny that you say he that people are taking advantage of him in situations because i thought the complete opposite i feel as if jesmart knows everything that he's doing and no one's taking advantage of him and if anything he's taking advantage of situations that he gets himself in so well but that's the thing i think it's i think in some ways it's a little bit of both Right, and I think that to me, that's kind of the, that, that that's a little bit the intelligence of the film. He's not presented a hundred percent as a victim a lot of the time, but it's more a case of would he be doing this in other circumstances? Maybe not, but it's still his choice to do it. And I think it gets across that kind of 
that duality of responsibility quite well to me. But. Yeah, I think the idea about antagon like ant- antagonists and the subtlety of that, like the conflict being there because it exists. And like you said, the I mean, we we talked a little bit about Martin Eden kind of pushing politics in certain ways and too much or and in, inappropriately. And I do think that this this worked better in that way. It's funny though, because yeah, you don't like this character as much. So I don't like the Jim Cummings character in the last <laughs> one. <laughs> I, don't know I, couldn't, I couldn't stand this character. <laughs> like, I just found him so insufferable. I felt as if if he just removed himself from situations, everyone would be better for it. His friend, his wife. Mm. But, but yes, but I, in saying that, I loved how they shot the fish. I just thought that that person, yeah. I think that they just have a real love for fish, which maybe, you know, Jim, because you spoke to the director. <laughs> but the way that they shot those fish, it was so visceral. I could feel the scales I was very impressed with that yeah I think it was a capture of life in a way that some documentary filmmakers could really learn from and I think that's why I particularly really liked it and I I I was it was quiet and yeah I mean it was you know there wasn't there wasn't the the narrative wasn't like incredibly too much conflict but also I I like these subtle these subtle stories that have a real that that deal with these topics a a lot more than some heavy-handed sort of telling you what you know and it's the same way that I look at Aquarella which we showed and it's a film about you know the climate crisis environment but it's very much also about showing you the power of water and there's so you know there's so much to be said in that silence as well and I think that's you know it was like you said, very visceral and um, just a pleasure to watch in that that way. So Lutsu was part of the London Film Festival, as uh, Jim mentioned, has been picked up for distribution in the UK. So we hope that it will arrive in a uh, cinema soon or online for you to watch. So look out for it. And if you want to check out the, um, the interview that Jim did as well with the director, please do on our um, on our podcast platforms or our YouTube channel. So as we were talking about Lutsu as part of the London Film Festival and uh, this year, well, we've done a couple sort of overviews of London Film Festivals over the past couple of years and specifically last year. And Jim, you've been to London Film Festival quite a lot. You went this year in London as during the press screenings. Isabel and I went to the film house um, version of London Film Festival, which I believe this is the first time London Film Festival has done it in cinemas because last, but maybe, maybe they did it last year that way as well, but no satellites, right? They've done it. They they did it in much more limited form, right? So I think, um, so 20, so 2020, you can't really do a comparison with that, of course, because, you know, for for, sure. for, for, for for obvious reasons, right? But um, 2019, I can't remember, there might be more than one, one, but they did it with the Irishman, right? So I watched the Irishman at the the, the DCA in Dundee. Um, right. I think it played at the Film House as well and probably GFT. It played, it played actually it didn't play in Edinburgh. That's why I was in, that was why I was in Dundee, but it was in Glasgow. Um, so they have yeah. done this before, but I think this is the, this is the first time it's been as extensive as this. Like there'd be a lot of the, the, big gala screens were kind of like the big films they've put them out to partner venues which is what i think uh, you folks saw so much of at the, the film house basically yeah absolutely and i definitely didn't go to the irishman and i saw it on netflix and 
yeah, turned it off a couple of times here and there, but, um, but yeah, no, I, um, I, I really liked, uh, so far what I've seen from the, from the satellite screenings. And I think it's really exciting. I think it's, it's great that the London film festival is able to share that across the, the, the UK. And, um, I saw so far, I've seen, um, the power of the dog Spencer souvenir part two, and um, yeah, like we're we're about we're going to see more as well, right? As well, we're going to we're going to go see more. Yeah, we're off for Petite Maman, and I'm also thinking we definitely need to see Flea at some point as well. So we'll definitely try and get tickets for Flea as well. Yeah, I'm very exciting to be able to catch these films, um, you know, and and feel part of a festival when you're not able to make it for the full, yeah, the full, because it, it, it makes it feel more of an audience festival. And I think one of the things with London Film Festival has always kind of gotten the fact that it's kind of very much like celebrity fast. I mean, obviously, like you said, the gala screenings, I mean, there's Bill Murray and Wes Anderson and, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch showing up at BFI Southbank, which is very cool and exciting. But, you know, at least this this means that it's much becoming more of an audience festival. Although not, not, not Timothy Chalamet, apparently. Like, I think he's filming Wonka in the UK, but you couldn't, be bother, you couldn't bother his arse to <laughs> nip over for the French dispatch screen, but, you know. Well, might, he's like... done Cannes, and he had somebody, I think he had Tilda put something on his back of his shirt, and it was big. Oh, poor, poor Timmy, poor Timmy. My, 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 heart, <laughs> ble- my heart bleeds for Chalamet. <laughs> I, I must say what I've enjoyed most about them being at Filmhouse as well has been just how nice the hub of sort of um, atmosphere when you get in there. Yeah. So the other day when Amanda and I went to go and see The Power of the Dog, we sort of ended up in the Filmhouse Cafe with quite a, running into quite a few people and it was just lovely. It just felt like, you know, we were back in a festival again. It was great. Yeah. And it, and it was Cinetopia people. So we saw Mark and we saw Maya. And so, but also that was Cinetopia community coming together at the film house, which like, how exciting is that? And, um, but you're absolutely right. It's a, like, it's a film festival that is for audiences, but also for like, you know, cinephiles. And if you like that word, I know some people don't, but you know, just the film lovers of us, um, so really, really well done film house, well done London film festival, I think. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, at the top of the show, we reviewed bond and we spoke about like, you know, how it was good to be back in a cinema watching that scale of yes. film. And I think like watching certain things at a film festival, it's a slightly different type of experience, but I think going to, so I did some press screens at London, but I also did some public ones just for stuff that I'd, I wanted to make sure I got into and the timing was better. Um, and I think this is also an experience I've, I've missed quite a bit. Um, you know, like one of the films I saw was Titan, Julia Durkinau's new film, um, which I'm not going to say too much about the film itself because we'll probably review it on the December show because it's going to come out at the end of December in the UK. Um, but if you know anything about a previous film role, you'll know kind of like, it's one of these films where you're going to have quite strong reactions to it. And I think I was really pleased that I said So I saw it at the the Royal Festival Hall, the South Bank. And, you know, there's a lot of people in there, but like, fortunately, it all felt pretty safe because it's quite, a, you know, it's a very big, airy venue. But it's one of those films where it's like, I'm glad I saw that with an audience. You know, I, I think the, 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 the sense that you get when certain scenes play out, that you feel kind of going around the people around you and people having the same reaction, in some cases different reactions, you know, it, it, it's... 
that's a really good example of a film where I'm really glad I saw that with a you know a, a decent sized audience and people who were kind of like you know really anticipating it at the same level I was. Um, the French Dispatch as well, another one. Like, unfortunately, we're probably not going to review it on the show because it's going to come out quite soon, and it was inevitably insanely popular. So as I understand, it's one of the ones that you couldn't get into at the film house because it was already sold Yeah, out. I tried. I looked every day <laughs> to um, see if there was an open ticket. You know, without giving too much away, that was a film I had a lot of fun with. Uh, I know some folk didn't, but I mean, I think if you if you like Wes Anderson, I feel like I've said this about every single film of his for the past decade or so, right? But if you, I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's going to convert anybody. I don't think you're going to get new Wes Anderson fans out of this, but if you're into his <laughs> style of filmmaking and tone, like various, so it's, you know, it's like, it, it doesn't quite hit the, the heights of, uh, for me, anyway, like Moonrise Kingdom or Grand Budapest Hotel, and maybe a couple of the early ones, but it's still it's still a really enjoyable piece of work. I got a lot out of it, um, so I think there'll be a lot of people very fond of that. I've seen some mental things as well, which I would only see at a film festival. I I, I don't know if either of you have seen it, but the the film Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, which won the Golden Bear at <laughs> Berlin Alley. Oh no! Uh, I, I I I walked into that for like, I you know I I I'll. I'll leave the details out in case you do go to see it. Um, Romanian film, extremely strange, quite funny in a lot of ways, but also a quite galling film to walk into not knowing anything about, which is exactly what I did. I joined a rush queue because I I couldn't get into the press screen to tan. There was a massive queue, so I'd I'd say, I'm not going to bother with that. Right, Golden Bear, yeah, all right, go on, let's check this out. And I, I got in like 10 minutes before it, it played. That was a profoundly strange film, um, but one that, I, one that I, I, I got a lot out of, but it's a weird, weird film. Um, the Power of the Dog I also saw. We're not going to talk about that too much because I think we're definitely going to do that in the show. Now. You know, but it's sort of there. it was also a very good documentary I saw about like a um, guy in Denmark who's trying to set the world record for the longest that you can play a, an arcade game for straight. Um Oh, just, do tell. Was, yeah, Cannon <laughs> like, Arm in the Arcade Quest. Um, oh, this is was, like on my documentary film to-do list. Yeah, I get the feeling you might quite like you, you might quite like it. It's a, that, that was, I, I like that. That was another one that I went to kind of at the last minute. And I think, keep an eye out for that one because that's, that's, quite, that's quite a good little documentary. Um, and then there's other stuff that I'll, I'll leave out because we'll probably talk about it in the show in the coming months. But I think it, it's really good that some of these films have gone to like, satellite screenings as well i'm pleased that other folk could see them in other parts of the country and had i been based in edinburgh as normal i probably would have gone to quite a lot of these um yeah if i was going to put my cynics cap on and say maybe they could share the love with other film festivals and not hoover up all the massive releases but if they are going to do that then you know i think this approach is a pretty good one to take and gets everybody a chance to see it I was going to say, I'm going to echo what you said about seeing these films with other people. Mm-hmm. There were, there was one or there was one that I saw by myself and that was fine. Cause yeah, I love watching films by myself. Um, but the power of the dog in particular, as Isabel had mentioned, we kind of ran into, you know, a, a crew of, of our, our Cinetopia community and whatnot. And we saw it and what just watching it together and looking and being able to kind of laugh and, you know, and, and be part of this group of people makes you realize how, how fantastic it is to watch cinema together. And also just, yeah, like that, it feels like a hub in that space. So again, very positive response to that. I think the one 
criticism that, you know, um, one, one of our colleagues, Amaya had pointed out because she was part of sort of submissions and London film festival. And as you were mentioning, these kinds of cool documentaries that you were seeing is that sometimes our satellite areas maybe doesn't need just the gala films, you know? So it's like the one thing with film houses, they're going to show power of the dog, you know, they're going to show Spencer, they're going to show, in fact, they only show those films that you see in these win the golden bear or win the can. And they're not showing, they're not always taking those risks. Um, and that's one of the best things about a film festival, the film festival experience is sitting around seeing seven films a day, going to press and screenings, not knowing what you're about to see. And I wish that the London film festival a bit would have offered kind of some of those other, um, and that literally was a comment from our colleague Amaya, but I agree with that because I would have really appreciated seeing some of those that we're not ever going to see likely at the film house, you know, but we could in, in the London film festival screenings, if they had kind of taken a slightly bit more risk. Yeah, I would like that as well, actually. And especially, it would have been really nice, to be honest, to get the entire program. <laughs> we could have just done it like what we do when we get the film festivals here normally. You get your press, your industry pass, you can go and see all the films, you go in blind. It's really nice. That's like the best part of a festival. And so you do miss that. You miss the colour of a festival when you only see like the big, bold ones. And it is nice to get the whole atmosphere and to see what people are actually programming. So, yeah, I would agree with that. The only other thing I'd say is like when we were talking about Bond in sort of like the big blockbuster cinema, which I think is such a perfect fit for it. But when you're watching these kind of films, like more like the Souvenir Part 2 and like The Power of the Dog, and you're seeing it in your independent, like Art Deco sort of cinemas, it's just amazing. Like you can't beat that sort of experience. So yeah, I do implore everyone to go and watch as many of these films as you can in the independent places when you actually can watch them. So speaking of film festivals, we have a couple, um, well, we have a couple film festivals coming up where it's film festival season, but in Edinburgh, this, um, we have a couple film festivals that are near and dear to our heart that are coming up um, in the last part of October and the early part of November. So I want to give a call out to the Taiwan Film Festival Edinburgh. Um, which is coming back for its second year. And it's going to be there from the 25th to the 31st of October. And there's a free online program, which is like one of the nice things about this program last year is that I it was all online, but it, but it was all free. Um, so, you know, if you want to get in a little bit more immersed in Taiwanese film, film, this is the, this is the place to do it, but also in-person screenings in Edinburgh and Glasgow. So it's starting the 27th and they have this really special program that I'm looking forward to going to on the 27th, which is double fill bill screening of two silent films, a morning in Taipei and as a bunch of eight, eight millimeter films. And it'll be accompanied with live scoring by um, a Glasgow based musician, Rory Green. So as everybody knows at Cinetopia, we love live scores and we love, you know, work that's made um, bespoke to these. So I think this is a really, really good uh, time and opportunity to check this out um so if you want to do it online it's free and if you want to do it in person there's all these other added benefits so check that out at there um and then of course we have to say that the edinburgh short film festival's 10th anniversary is coming up 
and it will be through the first three weeks of November. Please check the Edinburgh Short Film Festival's website up for that. It's obviously where the Cinetopia radio show all started, um, but they're having a very exciting program this time. I'm actually working on the trailer right now, and I just can tell you there's some really gorgeous films all over the world, and it's really a lovely experience um, to go to. Um, it'll be at Summer Hall this whole time. Sometimes they do it at Film House, but this year it'll be all at Summer Hall. I believe over seven nights and Cinetopia is running its second in-person networking evening at the beginning of the film fest uh, of, of the short film festival. So that I believe is November 4th. And so mark that date as our second uh, Cinetopia networking night, which will be, we'll kind of do outdoors at summer hall and this lovely courtyard that they have um, we'll be networking and, and then we'll all go, if you want into the screening um, or those who didn't get a ticket because it'll likely be sold out can stay around for more networking. So I'm very excited to be collaborating with Paul from the Edinburgh Short Film Festival on those two. So those two film festivals, I just wanted to put a shout out for because um, they're really great offers. And that's what's one of the best things about Edinburgh is we have such great festivals in all capacities, but our film festivals you know, take one action last month was incredible. You know, we have, we have really great festivals here. Apart from coming back to Edinburgh for a couple of weeks, Jim, and hopefully heading to our networking events, uh, what's uh, what's on your film schedule? Um, well, a little bit similar to last month. It seems like all these massive blockbusters that got delayed are now all coming out. <laughs> I know, it's so, um, so I think the one I'm very interested in, we might talk about on the show next month. I don't know. It depends what else we want to squeeze in is June. Uh, Denny Villeneuve's um, adaptation of that coming out. I'm really interested in seeing that. He's a director I've, whose work I've really liked i like the blade runner sequel he did uh prisoners arrival it's a guy like all these films i think he, i think he's a really good director so it'll be interesting to check that out um i'm also kind of interested sticking with big films right because there's film festivals going on um cambridge film festival is one that i might try and get back to one that i've got a long association with um check a few things out there but there are a lot of big films going out there actually could could be emphasis on could be interesting so there's eternals is one of these new marvel films coming out but it's directed by chloe zhao who you know won for yeah. nomad land um you know so that's it that, that that's just an interesting kind of mashup there to see how that that turns out um you know i think the new Celine shiyama comes out next month that very keen to see that so it's kind of a combination there's festivals going on i really want to get you know, stuck into the Edinburgh Short Film Festival program as well. Um, try and do a few previews and write them up. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. Cambridge, a lot of big films. Basically, it's it's all happening again, and I want to try and take as much of it in as possible. I know. I mean, that's how I feel. It's like all these films are coming out, so I have to be at the cinema all the time. But yes, <laughs> now we can run events. So we also have to be running film events uh, between Cinescapes and Cinetopia. So it's just like... I'm torn between, yeah, like running events, watching films, film, 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 film. Yes, I'm obsessed. And on that note, Isabel, yeah, so we're doing a lot of work together. No, like November is going to be crazy. I think we're going to probably run another, like it's going to be like our September. I think it's going to be like seven film events, right? 
I think it's going to be an awful lot. There's an awful lot going on, but um, it should be a really, really fun event. I'm also in the works at the moment talking about putting on a documentary about Sherry for Sherry Week, which should be a lot of fun and with sort of an in tandem Sherry tasting after, which I'm sure everyone will enjoy. Um, like yourself, Jim, I'm thrilled um, to go and see quite a few of the movies. I really want to go and see June. I'm looking forward to Celine's Guillermo, which Amanda and I are off to see sort of in a couple of days time and I'm also a big fan of Venom 1 so I'm really excited for Venom 2. <laughs> well you've you have come on you have come on the right radio show because I am one of the few people who will actually defend that first Venom film. I think it's fine. I think it's quite good. It does it does exactly what I wanted to and it achieves it extremely well. It was it was a it was a great watch. Um, Tom Hardy was bizarre and brilliant, and yeah, I can't wait for this new one, especially with Woody Harrelson being sort of like a Hannibal Lecter esque villain. So, yeah, it should be a good watch. And as you said, next month is Bojo Day, which I heard is going to go be one of the our screenings that was going to happen on Bojo Day. But I didn't know that Scotland and Bojo Day have such a nice combination, right? Well, we do indeed. So basically, on the third um, Thursday of November every year. It's Beaujolais Nouveau Day, which is known as Bojo Day, where everyone in the industry has a glass of the new Beaujolais Nouveau and a bacon sandwich at 11am. So I shall be doing that all day on the 8th of November. So please, anyone come and visit me down at Winecraft in Cannon Mills, and you're welcome to come and sample some Beaujolais with me and have a bacon sandwich. I literally, my favourite thing about when I leave when I leave UK is I have a bacon roll and add a little Beaujolais. It sounds, it literally, it sounds, it sounds divine. And I just had to throw that out there because we are talking French dispatch, which we've not reviewed, but you know, we must, we must love and support and wine bringing Isabel in for this, for this event. Yeah. It's all about wine and, and film for me this month. Um, so I hope that's um, well, wine a film and whatever you like, uh, uh, as well for you uh, this month as well. So let us know what you think about the films. Write us back let, and and give us your comments and join us. Yeah, at all our events. Uh, networking is literally going to be tomorrow when this airs. So the 20th of October at the Moxie Fountain Bridge on the rooftop bar. You couldn't pick a more perfect location uh, for an informal conversation around film. I was going to say, and just as a little thing, you can even see from the rooftop where Sean Connery used to live with his parents. So just a fun little added bonus to all these Bond lovers. Absolutely. It's all about Bond, wine, film, and networking for us this month. And uh, yeah, see you, see you around next time. And thank you for joining us. Thank you.